Well, Randon and I are beginning a new series entitled The Me I Want to Be. Uh, I really enjoy being me, but there's some parts of me that I'm sick of and that I want to change. How many of you have a me you want to be? Um, and so we're going to talk to you about becoming the person you really want to be, the person you feel like God created you to be, the person you feel like you would enjoy being more than the one you are right now. And so we're going to be talking about that over the few weeks. We're going to open the Scripture to you and share some things with you that I think will give you motivation and direction uh, and help you move forward in life. You know, um, changes are happening all around us at lightning paces. Most of those changes I have nothing to do with. It was someone else's choices. It was somebody else did. And um, I don't live my life a victim, Richard, of everybody else's choices. But I want to make some choices about who I am and who I am not. And I want to do those things because I believe it's right and best for me. Um, so that's what it's about. It's deciding what I want to be and not letting the world dictate all the changes that we are in the midst of. You know, each year I mark at the beginning of the year what I am and I determine what I'd like to be at the end of that year and uh, then I measure the progress that I've made. And so if you join with me in this thought process and you look back at what you were at the beginning of 2016 and then what you were in two, at the end of 2016, how much change, how much progress, how much forward motion did you achieve? You see, for life to move forward, there has to be change. And if there's no change, there's no forward motion. So it's possible to live in a world that is rapidly changing, but not be personally changing. And to be in a very stationary position, even though everything around you is changing, personally not change at all. You know, there's something about life that uh, you grow up wanting to grow and mature and be different and be better and improve, but then after a while, you can just sort of level off, accept yourself as, it, as you are, accept your life as it is, and just keep repeating the same thing year after year. When we first got married, we were all trying to uh, build a great marriage and, and uh, have a great life together. And the first thing happened, we started discovering things about the person we married that we didn't know. We thought we knew them until we moved in with them, and then we realized there were certain things I must have overlooked. And um, in that process, you start to discover things about yourself that you didn't know existed. You start to find out realities about the person you are, and then through much pain and conflict, those things start to change. But after a while, a marriage can just kind of flatten out, and no longer is the husband and wife trying to make improvements, trying to make changes, and we just sort of settle back and say, well, that's the way he is, that's the way she is, and we're just going to live with it. And life goes into that stationary method where, you know, year after year, we come and go, and we're just the same person living the same life thinking I'd like to be different, I believe it'd be better if I would, but not really putting the effort in to make it happen. And so let's not let 2017 pass 
and be the same people, living the same life, doing the same things we did at the beginning of the year. We don't just need a new year, we need a new season. The best way to start a year is simply to begin with the end in mind. Like we're still at the front of the 2017. Have you thought about what you would like to make changes in and what you would like to be at the end of the year? You see, we have to start in December and work our way back to February. We have to say, you know, this is where we want to be. This is where I want to be at the end of the year and start making decisions that move me in that direction now. Because you already know how life is. Life is happening so fast around us. We start one year, we finish one year and start another, and it just all went by in a blur. And if we don't intentionally make some changes early in the year, the year will come and go and nothing will have happened. You know, um, Stephen Covey wrote a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's not a spiritual book. It's a book of wisdom that's helped many of us be more effective in life. And if you've read that book, you know that the second habit of highly effective people is to simply begin with the end in mind. So whatever you endeavor to do, determine what the end is, the result is, and then start from the beginning with that as your target. Now, Stephen's a smart guy, but he wasn't the first to come up with that. Actually, God did exactly the same thing. You'll remember how that before there was an earth or a human race, God saw the earth, the human race, and he saw the need for a Savior. And the Bible says that Jesus, in the mind of God, was crucified, became the Savior of the world before the world was ever even created. So before he started the first thing, he already had the finish in mind. And so you and I, as we uh, address any project or endeavor in life, it is so important that we start with the end in mind. And I want to encourage you to have an end in mind for yourself in, this, in the context of this year. Make some determination. Set some goals. Don't just make frivolous New Year's resolutions. They don't ever last. Make a commitment to make personal changes. Not to point at others around you and say, my, how much better my life would be if my husband or wife or my boss or my pastor or my, would make these changes, but what changes can I make? What do I have control of? What can I fix? There's so much of our world that I can't change, I can't fix, I can't alter. But what is within my grasp that I can change? There are personal things about me as there are personal things about you that we can change that ultimately would change the very life we live. We can't make excuses or blame others or wait for others to change so that our lives will change, but we have to take the initiative and make changes our very own self. Intentionality is a very important thing. It's vital to this process. You have to be intentional. Some people lit, think that, well, if we live together long enough, maybe we'll figure it out. If I live long enough, I'll probably get over it. Uh, the fact is, just eating, sleeping, breathing, and repeating that process, getting older is not necessarily going to change who you are or fix what you would like to be fixed in your life. You've got to be intentional about it. At some point, you've got to dive right into it and say, by the help and grace of God, this is going to change about me. We don't just need a new year, we need a new season. How do we initiate a new season in our lives? 
In the book of Acts, chapter 3, verse 19, it said, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The first word is repent. What does that word mean? It means to change your mind. It means to do an about face. It means a reversal. And so, if you want your season to change, and for God to send you a time of refreshing, a new season in your life, something has to change in the way you're thinking and the way you're viewing life and even yourself. Until our mind changes, we're never going to change ourselves or our lives. We have to see things differently. Our mental views must change if we're going to make the changes that we want to make. Repentance is a change of mind, a change of attitude, a change of perspectives and paradigms, and it's what initiates a new season in our lives. I'm never going to be the person I want to be if I don't stop thinking the way I'm thinking in certain areas of my life. If I can't somehow elevate my thoughts and get them out of the ruts and get them out of the patterns that I'm in, then I'm never going to change. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The fact is, we all think in patterns. We have the same thoughts over and over and over and over again. As similar things happen in our lives, we mentally respond to those in exactly the same ways, and we have exactly the same thought patterns. These thought patterns lead to not just attitude, but behaviors and a personal culture. But when those when we can somehow change the thought paths, change the ruts of thinking that we're in, and elevate those thoughts and begin to thinking from a higher level, then that's what initiates a change. The fact is, if I can't change my mind, I'll never change my life. It starts right here, thinking differently. You know, when I have changes that I'm making in my life and will continue to make, I have to have moments of personal realization. At some point in time, the light has to come on in my head. A spirit of understanding comes on me from the Lord, and suddenly I see the problem more clearly than I've ever seen it. Suddenly I realize what I've been doing that's causing the situation I want to change, and I see what I could do that would make it better. It is a moment of personal realization. For me, um, it happens usually through reading and studying. My first book is the Bible. Beyond that, I read a lot of books. I, I love information. I'm interested in everything on the planet. And one of my great regrets is I don't have enough time to read everything that I want to read. I have stacks of books I'm trying to get through. And I read. And when I read things, it opens up my mind. I'm looking at life and situations through the lens of someone else, and it helps me to see things more clearly. And God sends me certain authors that have insights in certain areas of their life. And as a result, these authors help me to see myself. I'm a student. If there's anything that qualifies me to stand here today, it's because I'm first a student, and I'm continually learning. And, and, and in, the, in times of reading, sometimes random material, sometimes unrelated subjects, there's a spirit of understanding will come upon me. 
Also, as I go through life and I watch people and I see circumstances around me, oftentimes in someone else's life, I get a glimpse of my own life. And I see what's going on in them that helps me understand what's going on in me. It's a moment of personal realization. When I'm in prayer, I talk to God about things that I need help with and things I'm concerned about. I found out that God talks to me about whatever I talk to Him about. If I want to talk about my health, He'll talk to me about my health. If I want to talk to Him about my marriage, He'll talk to me about my marriage. If I want to talk about my finances, He'll talk to me about my finances. God will talk to me and you about anything we want to talk about. So one of the ways that I have moments of personal realization is I have long conversations with God. I do most of the talking, admittedly. But when He says something, it makes a big difference. So in prayer, you can have a moment of personal realization when an aspect of your life just clears up and suddenly you see cause, effect. I do this, that's why that happens. If I change this, something different is going to happen. It's a moment of realization. For whatever reason, I get things before daylight before I'm fully awake. And I'll be laying there in a state of slumber thinking I've got to get up in the next 45 minutes or an hour. And in that state of mind, things come to me. Things pop in my brain that I might have been praying about or studying or worried about or whatever the day before. Just I have a moment of realization. And if when I wake up, I will capture that information. It's, it's truth. It's understanding that helps me. So sometimes when I'm in that state of slumber... I have a moment of realization. Something just comes to me that clears it up. The Bible calls it a spirit of understanding. When the eyes of our understanding is open, suddenly it clears up. So I tell you that for every change I've ever made in my life or our ministry or our church, every significant change, there was at some point a moment of realization. So I want to encourage you to pursue those moments. And when you have those moments, capture them. It's like God turns the light on something, and suddenly it's, it's illuminated, and you can see it clearly. But in a few moments, the light goes off, and you're like, whoa, what was there? I found that if, if when it's illuminated, if I can write it down, if I can capture it, then I can own it. But if I don't capture it in that moment, I lose it. When the light goes out, it's like, man, what was I thinking? What was that about? What, how was I connecting the dots? I don't know. So when you have these moments, you've got to learn how to capture them so that after the light goes off, you can still use it. So with every word I speak, thank you for that golf clap. With every word I speak in terms of ministry like this, there's a grace that's released. And there's a grace released on you to have a moment of realization and to understand some aspect of, of your life, yourself, something you're concerned about that, that can make radical and permanent changes. It's a moment of realization. Now, in those moments, <clears throat> my desire is increased. My determination, my hope starts to spike. This is important because you can know you need to change. You can know what needs to change. 
you can know how to change it. But if you don't have the desire and the passion to change, it's never going to happen. It, it's like that automobile you and I drove up in here. It can be a brand new automobile and everything working right, but if it runs out of gas, it ain't going nowhere. And so if I run out of desire, I can't make the personal changes I want to make if I run out of desire. So I have to, call, I have to manage that desire. So when I'm studying and I'm learning and understanding is there and I'm seeing how it could be different and what I could do to change, I have to generate that desire and I have to call it precious and I have to preserve it because I know it's not enough just to see what I need to do. I've got to have the force to make it happen. And much of that comes from just a strong desire. A strong desire. You know, we can nurture desires or we can starve desires. I have unhealthy desires in my life that I'm starving. I don't want those desires. Those desires are not good for me. They're not godly. I don't want those desires. So I starve those desires. There are other desires that are good, and I feed those desires because I want those desires to drive my life. Yes. I think I'm preaching better than your amen in today. I, don't, I just get that feeling that this is better than you're telling me it is. Maybe, maybe I'm living in a bubble this morning. And sometimes you don't realize, but when I'm really talking to you in your heart, you, you almost go into this. <laughs> I'm afraid some of you are going to quit breathing and fall out. It's not that big a deal. You will survive this. No one has ever died through one of my teachings. Never. I have had them fall out on the floor, but they never died, right? So stay with me this morning. Let me know you're out there. Keep breathing. Yeah. And so that desire is very important because it's what fuels the changes in my life. I also find that I have to change my conversation. Like this morning, I was hanging out before the first service with Bill Moses. You know Bill. And so, man, I'm just unloading on him everything I've been reading and studying and some insights that I feel like the Lord has led me to. And I was just sharing with him what I was learning. And he's like, yeah, well, man, that's neat. And he thought I was trying to help him. No, no. It, it's just I've learned that when I'm on to something, yes. I talk about it. Yes. My kids are like, uh, what's dad reading now? <laughs> because if I don't talk about it, it doesn't become a part of me. If I don't talk about it, th then nothing ever happens. I have to talk about it. If you get with me a few minutes, I'll talk to you about whatever I'm reading, whatever I'm learning, whatever I'm, I'm moving in. I'll talk to you about it because I found out that that's what makes it me. That's what makes it real is when I put it in my conversation and I talk about it and I express it. And, I, and, and I'm just telling you that if you want to change some area of your life and you want to move in a different way, don't just learn, but put it in your vocabulary and talk about it. Talk about it. Talk about it. Talk about it. Make it a part of your life. Now, you know, once it becomes a part of me, then I can move on to the next subject, the next area. But I keep talking about it till it becomes a real part of my personal character, my personal culture, who I am. And so if I change my mind, if I change my conversation, for sure I'm going to start to change some habits. Now, there's areas of my life that I'm concerned about. Now, what I'm saying today can apply to any or all of these areas. 
There's the area of my personal health. There's the area of my spiritual habits, spiritual habits like a routine of prayer, a routine of Bible study, a routine of worship, uh, spiritual habits. There are um, ministry habits where you and I give back. Everybody's got to have some place you give back. That's your personal ministry. We all receive, but everybody's got to have some place you give back. And there's habits of that. You know, what are my habits that where I'm giving back in. I'm not just taking, but I'm giving back to people and I'm putting back in and I'm serving others for Christ. So that's an area I look at. I look at uh, finances. What are my personal habits of finances? How well am I managing my money? Am I saving and investing or just spending and borrowing? I look at relationships. Uh, How am I doing in my relationships? Are the relationships around me healthy and growing? Are we resolving conflict and dealing with issues? Are we making changes and becoming closer and more harmonious, moving together? Or is it just drama, 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 drama? I look at career, business, education. All these things are areas of our life that we need to look at. When I say look at, I'm talking about our personal culture. I use this terminology a lot. I find it to be very helpful. Everybody has a personal culture. This is not your wife's culture, your husband's culture, your boss's culture. It's your culture. This is who you are. It's a lot of little things. It's a lot of what could, be, what could seem like unimportant things, but together they add up to be the person that you are. For instance, if you're the kind of person that is generally a little bit late to everything, that's your personal culture. It's not the traffic. It wasn't the last-minute phone call. It wasn't the kids that wouldn't get dressed. It's your personal culture. If you're the kind of person um, that um, dresses very sharp and neat and clean, maybe not expensive, but always pressed and matches, if your hair is just right or it's never just right, that's personal culture. If you're saying things and consciously, unconsciously, you're always saying, thank you, Jesus, and praise the Lord, and God bless you, that's a personal culture. And if four-letter words are slipping out your mouth, that's a personal culture. If your car's clean, or your car's always dirty, it's a personal culture. It's not because you've got four kids. It's a personal culture. Now, if you've got four kids, it, it raises the bar up and down, you understand what I mean. Um, you know, if your house is orderly, it's a personal culture. If you go to church every week, it's a personal culture. If you say happy birthday, send out cards and letters, it's a personal culture. These are things that we do, choices we make. It makes us the people we are and the life we're living. And if we can't change these things, how can we ever address big things in life? You might have heard me use Tom Corley's Habits of the Rich. It's an interesting study about the personal culture of people that are qualified to be rich versus those that are poor. And so he studied the personal habits and the personal culture of rich people versus poor people, and little seemingly unrelated personal habits or lack thereof seem to make a big difference in whether you're rich or poor, and so I'm going to read you a couple examples. There's a lot, but I'm just going to read a couple to give you the idea, the the thinking on it. Listen to this. 
70% of the wealthy eat less than 300 junk food calories per day. 97% of the poor people, of poor people eat more than 300 junk food calories per day. 23% of the wealthy gamble. 52% of the people, poor people, gamble. 80% of the wealthy are focused on accomplishing a single goal. Only 12% of the people do that. 76% of the wealthy exercise aerobically four times a week. 23% of the poor do that. 63% of the wealthy listen to audiobooks during the commute to work. Only 5% of the poor do that. 81% of the wealthy maintain a to-do list. 19% of the poor do that. 63% of the wealthy parents make their children read two or more nonfiction books a month versus 3% of the poor. Okay, you got it. So when you study the personal culture, the personal habits of people that are very successful in life versus people that are less than successful, you find out it's a lot of little things they do or don't do that adds up to success. And that's what people have to realize. You know, you have to realize that there are things about myself the way I live, the way I think, the way I conduct life, there are things about it that, that, that either will help me to change and be the person I want to be or not. It's all about my personal culture. And how can I be a world changer if I can't be a personal changer? And how can I address big things that might need to go in my life if I can't address even the smallest things in my life? You know, my feeling is start small. Don't tackle some big thing. Just start small. You see, the muscle you build to change small things in your life is the same muscle you're going to need to change the big things in your life. So, you know, if we look at some small habit, some small thing that we do in one of these areas I mentioned, and we say, you know, I'm just going to change that. You'll be building muscle to address bigger things in your life if you'll learn how to just do the small things. If you change enough small things, the big things will come natural and easy. So I want to encourage you, just start small. Let me ask you a question. Can you think of anything you changed about your personal culture in the whole year of 16? I'll give you a minute. Can you think of anything in 2016 that you said, you know what, I want to change this about me? I'm not talking about changes that happened because the world changed and you didn't have a choice. I'm just talking about things that you said, you know what, I don't want this in my life. I don't want this habit in my life. I'm going to change this about me in 2016. Can you think of one thing, two things, anything? Well, you know, 17 is going to be like 16 if we don't make it a point. And so what I encourage you to do is why don't you do this? Why don't you say, I'm going, to, I'm going to pick one small, maybe insignificant habit that's not healthy and not what I want to do, and I'm going to change that by Mother's Day. And I'm going to start a good habit by Mother's Day. So I'm going to break one that I don't want, and I'm going to create one I do want. And I'm going to get that done by Mother's Day. I mean, that's more than 60 days. Any habit can be broken or started in less than 60 days. So I want to encourage you, pick something small. And say, you know what, I'm going to change this. Before Mother's Day, it's going to be different. And when it changes, it's going to stay that way. I want to encourage you to, um, to understand the cycle of habits, the cycle. How do we have these kind of habits? Usually there's what they call a trigger. 
something that triggers a behavior, and then afterward the behavior, there's some kind of a reward that we experience. And so I see a big bowl of bluebell blue ice cream, and I'm like, boy, that looks so good. And then I dive right in there and I eat me a big spoon of that bluebell ice cream and it go hits my taste buds. My taste buds are doing jumping jacks in my brain saying, oh, that is so good. Man, I love that bluebell ice cream. And my brain is just having a good time. Now, not long after that, that sugar rush dies off and all of a sudden I'm heavy and I'm thick and my brain's not working right. But I ignore that. All I do is think about that moment when that bluebell hit my taste buds. And my taste buds are doing handstands and my brain is saying, man, that's good stuff. So if I got to realize that there's a cycle, there's a trigger, something that triggers the behavior, there's the behavior itself, and then there's some sense of reward or some kind of a, a pleasurable experience that goes on in your brain that makes you want to repeat it. So I know where the bluebell is. I know how much is in there. I know exactly what flavor it is. And long before we run out, I'm going to stop and get some more to make sure we don't run out because God forbid, run out of toilet paper, but don't run out of bluebell. <laughs> because you can use a lot of things for toilet paper, but nothing <laughs> takes a place of bluebell. And so your brain creates these, these grooves and your brain is, is creating this addiction. This reward syndrome is taking over. And over and over again, your brain is saying, go buy the refrigerator. Go buy the refrigerator. Just go buy for a moment. You don't need much, but just a little bit. Help you get through the day. You got to break that. You got to break that cycle. And you got to minimize the reward and maximize the consequences, how you feel after the fact. And so you use the reward system when you're eating something good. Like we're all trying to, to drink a lot more water. We realize that, that we're, we're less than healthy because we're not drinking enough water. So you start to drink water. And at first it's just like plain water. Why do I need more plain water? And your brain is not getting the signal that something good has just happened because you drank eight ounces of water. But after a while, you start to feel your digestive system working better and your brain is a little clearer. You're not having those sugar highs and lows. And, and, and suddenly your brain starts to sense that, you know what, maybe this is helping me some. And if you'll exaggerate that reward, it'll take you back and it'll be easier and easier. And pretty soon an old habit's replaced with a better habit. But it's all about magnifying the sense of reward and retraining your brain are these habits will never ever change. First of all, we've got to become conscious of when we're doing things wrong, conscious of it. Now, you know, my wife is conscious of me and I'm conscious of her, but sometimes I'm not conscious of myself. You know, I do things she swears I do all the time and I don't remember even doing it. Because God made this human body so stinking marvelous that we can do things subconsciously. Amazing, complicated, dangerous things. Like this morning, I drove in from Houston. I hardly even remember the drive. I don't remember 
shifting in gear. I don't remember accelerating. I don't remember hitting the brake. I don't remember taking a certain road. I just got in there. My, I went brain dead. My mind was somewhere else. I was listening to scripture, thinking about what I was going to talk to you about you this morning. And I'm just driving subconsciously. Never had an accident. Never got a ticket. Got here safe and sound. And it never crossed my mind. Speed up, slow down, turn right, turn left. I don't remember any of that. I just drove. Kind of scary, isn't it? Kind of scary, isn't it? Habits are that way. We, we do them subconsciously. We're not even mindful of it. We just do it because we've been doing it so long and, and we have the ability just to do things and we don't even know we're doing it. So the first thing I've got to do is become conscious of habits that I want to break in my life. When am I doing it? Where am I when I do it? Who am I with when I do it? And what is making me do it? And what is the reward that I'm getting out of it? Just becoming conscious of it is the first step. I've got a bad habit here. I've got something that's not exactly healthy. It may not be a bad, horrible habit. It's just not a good, healthy habit, not the one you choose. But you keep doing it because you're not even conscious of it. So the first step is to become conscious of it. When you do it, where you do it, why you do it, who you do it with, and what sense of reward are you getting out of it. And what can, what can you change? Sometimes just avoiding the environment is all it needs. And so I think it's really important that uh, we become aware of it, just conscious of the fact that it's happening. And just exaggerate the good reward and retrain your brain. Much of what life is just retraining our brain. And... Uh, have a plan to restart. Because when you, when you start to change something, you know, just everything I've ever tried to change, I'd get started doing real good, and then boom, fall on my face. And if I just, just said, okay, I give up, I quit, I'd have never gotten it changed. You, you've got to have a plan to restart from the beginning. Because habits are usually broken only to be repeated. So you got to have a plan to restart right away. Just got to anticipate the fact that, you know what, I'm probably going to do good for a day or two or three, and then I'm going to fall off the wagon. How many ever fell off the wagon? Now, I'm not talking about drinking. I'm, I'm just talking about making up your mind you wanted to change, and you stayed on the wagon for two or three days or a week, and then boom, you fell off the wagon. I mean, you start a diet, you do good for a week or two, and then you fall off the wagon. And you, you, you'd say, I'm going to do this every day or every week or something, and you do real good for a few weeks, and you fall off the wagon. Well, just get back on the wagon, honey. Yeah. Just get back on the wagon. Yeah. You know, if you keep getting back on that wagon, pretty soon you'll quit falling off that wagon. Just get up get back on the wagon, and you'll get there. Yeah. Don't just say, okay, I fell off the wagon, so I guess I'm never going to get it done. Say, no, I just got to get back on the wagon. How many are ready to get back on the wagon here this morning? All right. <laughs> Thank the Lord. So I want to encourage you to have a plan to restart. Habakkuk chapter 2, God gave a message to the prophet, and he said to the prophet, write down this vision. Make it plain so people can read it and then run with it. And so um, I think it's important sometimes to write things down. Uh, I'm a writer. Now, I used to write everything with, my, with a pen. I still do a lot of that, but everything is mostly digital today, and uh, two good reasons for that. Number one, if it's digital, I can read it. 
I write some things down, I can't read it. Not long ago, I got caught without my digital devices and I had to write out my sermon notes. So I wrote them all out. I laid them on the pulpit and I started to preach. Looked down and said, what in the world is that? <laughs> How in the world did I ever preach from my own notes? I can't even read it. So, um, uh, so it's mostly digital now. And uh, however you do it, you know, on your phone, you got a good smartphone, you can start taking some quick notes and write it down. Make a commitment, write it down, take some notes. There's something about when it comes out of your brain and, and you either speak it with your mouth or you capture it digitally or with your handwriting, the fact is it becomes tangible and real when you write it. As long as it's floating around in your mind, you know, it's like it can come or go. But when you write it down, it becomes tangible. The other big deal about digital is I don't lose it. It's always where I am. If I've got it on my phone, wherever I am, I've got it with me. And in moments, I can read it and refresh and it helps. So um, write it down. Make it plain. It'll help you a lot. If you just write things down, you get it there. Secondly, um, make sure that um, you talk about it. Did I tell you that? Talk about it. Like put it in your conversation. And also, be sure that you get someone to pray with you about it. If it's something significant that you really need to change, you've got to pray with people about it. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, Jesus said, I also tell you this, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. And so I want, just want to encourage you to, to come into agreement with somebody and pray with them and say, I, you know, I'm trying to make some personal changes, and I, I want to ask you to pray with me about this area of my life. And, uh, you know, when you do that, the power of the Holy Spirit will come into you. The power to make those changes will come upon you if you get somebody to agree with you because there is power in agreement. Can you say amen? amen. One final verse, and I'll be do done for this morning. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, it gives us what we call the fruit of the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit lives in our hearts, it has this effect, this impact on our behavior. There were nine different fruits or evidences of the Holy Spirit, indwelling Holy Spirit. How many can tell me what the ninth fruit of the Spirit is? There's nine. There's, what is the ninth one? The last one listed is what? What is it? Self-control. So the Holy Spirit living in me gives me the power and the ability of self-control. So it's not like I just have to suck it up and be a man about it, bless God. No, I have the Holy Spirit living in me. And as a man, I probably couldn't get it done. But as a vessel of the Holy Spirit, He's empowering me to control the things about me that I can control and be the person that I want to be. It's the evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life that I have self-control. You know, when I see occasionally someone that just seems to be totally out of control, they want to do one thing and do something totally different all the time, I think to myself, you know, they need the Holy Spirit inside of them to help them control themselves, control passions and desires, control thoughts of the mind, control desires of the heart, habits of the hand. You know, the Spirit of God comes in us so that we can make the changes that we need in our lives, and He is here to help us. You know, God's not here to blame us or condemn us. He's here to help us. He's on our side. He loves us. He cares about us. And the Spirit of God is here to give us the help and the control that we need.